0: Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma Homage to the Buddha, the Blessed Noble and Fully Self-Awakened One. Um, So, what I'm hoping to do is to explain in the Buddha's model as to how the heart heals itself. When I say heart, when I use heart during this talk, I'm simply talking about your emotional life, your moods and emotions, both the pleasant and the unpleasant. And um, uh, this this is an area where you'll find that, that uh, Buddhist practice and modern psychotherapy meet. And um, uh, I, don't, I don't see a problem with that. Uh, but what sometimes seems to happen is that um, I get a feeling from some books I read that the Buddha didn't actually tackle this problem of, of our emotional imbalances. So I just wanted to make it uh, as plain as I can this evening how, how we create the problems and how we undo them. Yeah? Um, <clears throat> the fundamental problem lies with identity as to who we are. And um, unsurprisingly, uh, we think of ourselves as human beings. Unfortunately, having thought of ourselves as human beings in this, on this particular planet and all that, um, our deepest desire to seek happiness, to be at peace, um, is sought within the world. And by making our happinesses and our joys dependent upon the world, It means that when the world forsakes us, then we have all the downside of that particular commitment. So, for instance, if I um, am attached to my morning cup of tea, you see, and I wake up one morning and there is no tea, this is potentially a disaster. One feels dreadful, you see. That dreadfulness is caused because of that conditioning within me which creates morning happiness dependent on English breakfast, tea. At a more solid level of suffering, if my happiness is dependent on my job, on what I do, if I find myself identifying with that if and when or when I lose my job then I go through an identity crisis I don't know who I am in society because that's that's how I've defined myself at an even deeper level there's to do with our relationship to other people especially those close to us and when they let us down either because they leave us or they die then i'm stuck with this dreadful pain in the heart this grief eh? which i sometimes mista- which i mistakenly think or i can mistakenly think is actually the measure of my love but actually is a measure of my attachment to that person because the one good thing about love is that it can let go it can allow the person to do what they want to do but the grief we feel with the loss is a measure of how much we are dependent on that person for my personal happiness and the worst time comes when it's time for me to die because then however I've defined myself looks pretty unsteady (laughs) and that's why death comes to us as a great shock because death is saying whoever you thought you are you're not if you've defined yourself by your body I am this body then for sure we're in for a shock if you've defined yourself as I am this person I do these things in society I have these relationships all this I and how we relate to the I what death does is it undermines that though all those particular self-definitions and dependencies so you can see that somewhere deep within our psyche there's a mistake and it's through this mistake that we form this relationship to the world we live in and it's not just identity it's also possession so we we form a certain safety a safety net around us by possessing things possessing money we feel much safer if there's a hundred thousand pounds in the bank and not ten so all that psychology around possession around identity is a cause of suffering for, for us. Because when we lose it, we feel grief. When we can't get it, we feel frustrated. And we're constantly afraid we might lose it. So there's always this underlying anxiety around those things that we're dependent on for our particular happinesses. Hence, the huge insurance industry. So, from that position we formulate a dual relationship to the world. We either want something or we don't want it. It's extraordinarily simple. If I like something, if I enjoy something, I try to hold on to it. I try to keep it, I try to develop it. If I don't like it, I try to get rid of it. If I don't like somebody, I try to take out a contract on that person and just get rid of them (laughs) thinking that in so doing I shall make myself happier it might be a relief but unfortunately it doesn't tackle the fundamental problem See, so this is the core of our problem it's one to do with the question who am I and the essential purpose of insight meditation is really to solve that particular question but you can see that from these wrong relationships we formulate or we've, um, we've begun to develop a whole emotional life, a whole attitudinal life hmm, which is creating this inner atmosphere that I feel that often I have to suffer. And what it's done is it's created a, a habitual patterns Within the psyche, right? for those of you who know the words, these are what are referred to as your sankara. They're things that are put together. They're they're sort of accumulations. Well, that's not quite the right word. They are um, inclinations towards a certain type of behaviour. Yeah? So, <clears throat> if one is the, in the habit of nipping into Costa Coffee for an Americano and you do it two or three times it's very difficult to pass Costa coffee without slipping in for your Americano what is it that generates that sort of compulsive behavior you see and it is what we call these patterns these habits and I personally like them to these programs on a computer see? if you look at your computer where do these programs exist but you press a button and something appears on the screen. Something something takes something out of potential and and just manufactures it. It's a sort of um, electrical, mechanical habit that if you press this button, the word program appears. Isn't that similar to us? You know, we have these buttons, and if they're pressed, we behave in a certain way. And that this behavior in a certain way... um, manifests the strength of that habit and often our response to things tends to be inappropriate now here's a really sort of crucial point that the Buddha points to in in our psychology whatever we experience whether it's the seeing or the hearing whatever Um, is done to us by somebody else, whether it's something beautiful or something not so beautiful, Hmm? what I feel, what I experience as my response or reaction to that is not caused by the object. The happiness that I feel when I enter Costa Coffee for an Americano is not caused by the Americano coffee. All the Americano coffee can do is put a nice taste on my tongue. That's the contact I have with an Americano, that's all. The rest is completely manufactured from within my own psyche. All the perception of coffee, all the comparison as to whether this coffee is better than Nero's coffee, The whole mentation is all to do with me inside myself and has nothing to do with the coffee that's been poured or the original coffee beans that were picked. The coffee beans do not cause my mental state. And my seeking happiness in coffee has produced in me a reaction, a learnt reaction to coffee that whenever I smell coffee or taste coffee, happiness immediately arises. And I think that the coffee is making me happy. But it's not. It's my attitude to the coffee that has created this happiness. Yeah? Yeah? If it were not so, if it were that the outside world were creating my mental states, in terms of the process of liberation, I would find myself in an impossible condition. Because in order to make myself happy, this coffee has to be exactly the sort of coffee that I need to make myself happy, because this coffee is making me happy. If this person makes me sad, the only way I can get rid of my sadness, all my anger, is to get rid of this person. That's very simple. But if all my... Mentation, if all my emotional life, if all my thoughts are self-caused, then I should be able to undo those processes within me which are unwholesome and continue to develop those processes in me which are wholesome. And there are wholesome processes to be developed, love, compassion, joy, all the beautiful states that uh, we can develop as human beings yeah so now <clears throat> if I perceive that there's something in me an attitude a misunderstanding well I should say it, a misunderstanding which creates an attitude which formulates a relationship which formulates certain habits is all conditioned on something that is happening within me then How am I going to undo the processes within me which I see as being unwholesome, painful eh? and to develop those processes in me which I see are actually beneficial and beautiful. So here, um, the Buddha's teaching is again very clear. Hmm? Um, To talk about the practice of vipassana. So vipassana simply means insight or just the ability to find a position within ourselves where we can begin to see these misunderstandings and how they're working and what the trigger is that is actually causing the problem. In the process, we, as it were, turn inwards. There's an introspection. But it's not just a looking, it's a direct contact with what we're actually feeling it's a direct experience of our emotional life I'm only here talking about emotions I'm not talking about the body with pain or anything like that I'm just talking about the emotional life and as I sit quietly with myself and an emotion arises or a mood arises or a a mental state we can call it Uh, say something has happened during the day and I'm feeling irritated and I'm sitting with this irritation What do I notice happens? Suddenly I find myself in an argument with this person, creating an inner scenario where I'm finally getting my own back. This little scenario. When I wake up from that, I acknowledge. So this is the practice of Vipassana. I acknowledge that there is anger. I'm not at all concerned with the narrative. Because the narrative is only a metaphor for the actual presenting emotion. The emotion is looking for some way of indulging itself. It's just stuck here as a volition, a wanting to be angry. It's got an energy in it that wants to go out and grab an object and murder it. (laughs) So there's your anger. And because you're sitting still and the person whom you're angry with is not there... It wants to create a scenario where it can be fulfilling its particular wishes. And it does this through thought. Now, something has happened psychologically to move that emotional state into a thought pattern. Something's happened there. And it happens so quickly that we don't actually see what that process is. Okay? So the Buddha is very clear. First of all, there arises a consciousness, a knowing, which contacts that emotional state. It's just the bare consciousness. And it feels that consciousness as. It, exp- it, it knows that consciousness as a feeling. And it perceives it at the same time. All this is happening in microseconds. And it also determines whether it's likable or unlikable now funnily enough we've trained ourselves to see anger as something quite likable Yeah, think about it (laughs) because when you express your anger there's a feeling of relief so we this anger now is grasped hold of right as a desire to fulfill the desire of the anger the desire within the anger itself which is to express itself and that desire then becomes identified we identify with that desire so it becomes I want and as soon as that happens there's another moment where we put energy into it and that's the will and as soon as we energize that process we're into a whole set of thinking that's what's happened. You see? And you can, you know, if you're quick enough and in you're in your still enough, you can sit there and watch the beginning of that process. In the Vipassana, what we realize is that when I'm sitting still and just feeling the anger, uh, objectively, but feeling it, uh, there's no suffering. When I'm aware of the wanting to indulge the anger there's no suffering as soon as I identify with it suffering arises there's a magical moment where the awareness, the mindfulness consciousness for a better word I prefer the word knowing loses itself as it were in the process of becoming angry and at that point where we put the energy into that process of mentation uh, right we're becoming this is what the Buddha means by becoming moment to moment we recreate the sense of self and unwittingly every time we do that we empower that, predict, that particular habit that particular conditioning. so we get more and more there's more and more potential for anger huh? now you'll all have experienced I'm sure sometime in the morning somebody saying to you something which has slightly upset you nothing much but didn't like it and then you've put it to the side you're not going to be bothered by it that's the way they are huh? and then you go and have a cup of tea and the mind works on it huh? while you're eating lunch <laughs> you it. By the time you get home, it's raging. Yeah, you have to take an aspirin. This person only insulted you once, but you've repeated it, we've repeated it to ourselves a thousand times, so that the original little bit of uh, being miffed becomes this huge raging anger, which can only now be revenged by some heinous crime. <laughs> All that process was never even originally caused by the person who spoke those cold words to us. Even the original reaction of being miffed was self-caused. And we've created this whole world of burning anger, all within ourselves, and mistakenly determined that they are the problem. And the whole of the Buddhist psychology brings us back into the, re, the, the realization that it is me that's creating my world. Even as we walked into this church, um, this hall, it's not a denial that the hall exists when we're not here. Right, There is a reality of this hall at a certain level. But all of us would have had a different experience of this hall. We're all living in a different hall, actually. Huh? Even from what we can see, I'm, complete, I'm living in a very different hall from you people, I can assure you. Right? I can see the organ for the start. So, <laughs> so, everything that I experience is being manufactured by my own psyche. I like the word psyche because it, for me it it joins the whole mental process of emotions and thoughts which actually work together it's, it's us that split the two the one is always firing off the other now here's the magic of the uh, of the Buddha's teaching having developed a certain conditioning right, we'll stick with anger having developed a certain conditioning of anger how are we going to get rid of it having now developed it to such a delicate degree how do we now undo this process if we try and undo it we find ourselves in contradiction with the given state we're trying to get rid of anger have you ever tried to do that what you end up doing is pushing it away. What you end up doing is suppressing it and worse, you end up doing is repressing it because no energy can get rid of this turbulence. All you do is you put bad energy into bad energy because you don't want that. So, what we discover is by allowing the anger to manifest, it cures itself. It blows itself out. Now when I say allow the anger to manifest, I'm not talking about allowing it to form thought patterns. We've already understood that to be a way in which it indulges and grows. What I'm saying is, what the Buddha says is, sit with it, feel it, allow it to manifest. And, this is the tricky bit, see how you're relating to this anger, to this feeling. Does fear arise? You observe the fear. Do you think it's going to overtake you? You observe that fear. Are you averse to it? Is there some judgmental thing going on of, I shouldn't be feeling angry. I'm a bad person because I feel angry. You observe that. That's also another conditioning. Is there a desire to enter into the anger and to develop it? You notice that. But all the time you're centering on the fear Feeling that's arising in the body from this conditioning of anger. Now, you're neither suppressing it, you're not repressing it, and you're not developing it. So, what can this energy do? It can only exhaust itself. And that's how the heart heals itself. You don't actually have to do anything. Once you've understood that process, that's where your attention goes just to being with the presenting state whether it's anger depression anxiety despair guilt shame the whole gamut of human misery all it needs to all you need to do is attend to it and you can even flavor the attending with kindness so that you're allowing it to come up and blow away now when it comes to those things that we enjoy all the indulgences of life perhaps we have a problem with overeating it's the same thing when you sit with those particular desires you find that they're not actually so pleasant they're only pleasant when they're being gratified to be in a state of thirst is not pleasant It's only pleasant because we know when we drink the Coca-Cola, I'm going to feel great. So to sit with those desires that we see are over the top and to allow them also to express themselves is to take away that conditioning. And what is that conditioning based on? It's based on this fundamental misunderstanding that happiness is to be found in the sensual world. So now, if we cannot find happiness, and if we can undo all the unwholesome conditionings that we've got, what is it that we're actually moving towards? You see? What's the process of insight meditation or Buddhist practice? It doesn't, you don't have to do it sitting. It's just an attitude. It's a way of living. Where is it actually taking us? You see, What we find is that by accessing this position of the observer we are constantly relocating ourselves to a different center when we are a body consciousness when we think we are the body then it's very difficult to find any objectivity to the to the greed and the desires of the body Um, how do you experience yourself as a body self well, it's, I mean, as, a, as very young children, I think it, that's what we are, up to about the age of three or something, I don't know. But when you trap your finger in a door, yeah, for that one moment, you are a body. Yeah? All you are is that searing pain. Yeah? There's no objectivity, one becomes the pain. That's a wonderful example of being the body. Yeah? When you're, now, By finding this position of observing the body, feeling the sensations of the body, you've relocated out of the body. You're not the body because it's an object. You can't, the object and the subject can't be the same. You're feeling the body as an object, the sensations. Keeping more to our emotional state. When do we become emotions? When are we our emotions? When we lose ourselves. Huh? When you go into a rage, when, when you say to yourself, I am depressed and you're completely lost in it. When you're anxious and you panic and you, and you run around panicked, then you become an emotional self. There's no distinction between uh, the self and the mental state it finds itself in but through this process one relocates to a different position of the observer the feeler the one who knows the experiencer Hmm? and it's the same with thought except that thought and images are even quicker than both the body with its sensations and the heart with its emotions and so it's even harder to actually be objective about thought but at least when we come out of thought we can see where it is that we've been caught that what it is we've been caught up in and by doing so we relocate to a different position this relocation is the observer and especially in meditation but also in daily life just sitting in a park and just watching finding yourself in that position you see is a point where you discover that there's no suffering Now, this isn't the final point because obviously there's still a sense of self. If there's a sense of self, you see, then there must be something that knows the self. So even that can't be the final position. How do we experience, you might say, nibbanic or perfectly happy moments in our daily life? If you put... A good intention in your mind to do something and you give yourself to the action it may be that at first you're aware of yourself doing something and then suddenly there's a loss of that self-awareness you might have experienced it doing the garden or a job that you're really interested in hmm? but you have to be careful because every time you lose yourself in something if the intention is not pure, then it'll be developing these other types of habits which causes problems. But if the intention is pure, it'll be developing a habit which is supporting our liberation. Liberation from what? Liberation from suffering. That's all the Buddha's teaching. And when we enter into those states where we lose a sense of self, we, when we come out, we also recognize that we've lost a sense of time. Time and self arise together. And we also notice when we reflect on that moment, that in the moment where there was no self and no time, we were perfectly happy. So even in daily life, even in ordinary daily life, we can begin to move towards those places which we know are going to develop this inner sense of peace and happiness which is not dependent on the outside world See, not dependent on another person and that you could say is the process of liberation liberation from the fetter from the shackles of belief that the world can produce pure happiness now having said that does that deny the pleasures and joys of life not at all All it's saying is your relationship to them are of a different order. You neither want to possess them nor do you identify with them. You simply enjoy them. And the distinction between enjoying something and indulging is extremely subtle (laughs) and difficult to get. But in that distinction lies our happiness or lack of it. And when it comes to those things that we find Painful. when we can sit with patience with them and bear with them in a patient way we find actually there's no suffering so all this suffering, dissatisfaction unsatisfactoriness, discomfort all that stuff has never been caused by the world by anybody else it's all been caused within ourselves by a wrong understanding. And that wrong understanding is undermined through right practice and through the insights that we get by investigating ourselves through these processes of insight meditation. And if we do this with a certain commitment, uh, a certain um, diligence, yeah, then hopefully we should see some benefit. And it's always possible that we may be fully liberated, (laughs) even in this lifetime. But, I do not want to give you false hope. (laughs) But at least we can, over a period of time, feel that there's a sense of deep meaningfulness about our existence. That's where the real joy lies. That we're not here For some peculiar reason. That there is a deep meaningfulness to our lives. And that our lives are becoming more at ease. More at ease. That we're more contented. We tend to want, we tend more to want what we get than always get what we want. and we find ourselves living in harmony with the way things are even when the way things are are not particularly pleasant but you work with them in such a way that they don't cause the old depressions and anxieties of the past and these are the telltale signs that we're actually moving spiritually and The other great benefit of spiritual progress is the feeling, the growing feeling of connectedness with other beings, with other people. And that manifests in our kindness and gentleness, in our easy forgiveness, in our compassion, in our sympathetic joy. And when you feel these things are growing within you, these are the signs to you that you're moving spiritually. So, with those words of hope, (laughs) I can only hope that my words have been of some assistance. May you be fully liberated from all suffering sooner rather than later. (laughs) So, if there's any questions, brick backs. Yeah. Can you suggest we uh, go inside meditation? Are we watching the mind, the body? Yeah, you're you're finding uh, what one writer calls very happily an observation post within yourself. It's like um, a bird watcher, they find this place, a hide, they actually call it a hide, where you can just view the birds and you never interfere, you're just watching. Uh, by the end of it you can write your bestseller so it's the same as you find this position in yourself of that little hide of, a, of this observation probe, which we feel generally speaking as the observer the feeler, the knower the witness, there's all sorts of words for it um, then you begin to understand how your psyche is working so is the bird or is yeah. it or it's, all, it's all birds everything, everything. Oh, and what you're trying to see is the connectedness of things and how, how the one arises dependent on something else. So you put, you put something sweet on your tongue and your heart becomes happy. You put something sour on your tongue or something not tasty and you can feel a bit depressed. <laughs> the, mind comes up, the mind remembers something from the past and suddenly you feel sad. Some nostalgia arises. The mind remembers, and you feel it in the body. You feel heavy, or you feel whatever. You, you remember something from the past, and you think, and it makes you laugh, and your, your body it reacts with with lovely sensations. Mm. Bless you. Yeah, yeah. You spoke about um, introducing failings or meta in matters of learning. Mm. Can you say something more about Because sometimes it can be. Like, well, that's so right. You're of yeah, yeah. How many of you actually done any insight practice? How many have not done insight practice or the passing? So you'll be coming tomorrow. <laughs> 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 Um, Meta practice is um, just developing the heart of goodwill. It's often translated as loving kindness, but that, in a sense, gives it a feel which is not necessary, because you can practice goodwill when you feel horrible. Right? You can still send out goodwill messages uh, when you don't feel very well. Yeah. Look, um, I think that lady's come. Um you'd have to actually you'd have to actually do it um, sometimes if you're watching, so we say, suppose you're watching a cat um, I've just been that uh just in that house where there's a cat, and at first, you might just watch it in a sort of disinterested way, yeah and then somehow you form a relationship with it you're still watching it you're still observing what it's doing but there's a sort of kindness exudes towards the cat so you're inside yourself and you're watching these feelings Plus, it's a nasty one so you feel a bit depressed you feel it but there's as it were within the looking yeah. there's as it were in the contact there's a feeling of embracing it opening up to it a certain kindness towards it these things uh, obviously become apparent with the practice you know it's not if you haven't done the practice it's a bit sort of abstract you said towards the end that doing this suddenly your life has meaning I not suddenly <laughs> sorry never suddenly yes exactly. <laughs> yes it has meaning Yes, right. Well, um, normally speaking, uh, the meaning of our lives is dependent upon the life we're living. It depends on my relationships, on my job, on everything else, you see. When I begin to realize that these are very uh, untrustworthy meaningfulness things, because they can disappear, I'm seeking for a deeper meaning as to why is it I'm here in the first place. And what spiritual practice does is it takes you to that core purpose of your being here. And in Buddhist terms, it's the evolution of consciousness. It's the evolution of the knowing. Don't confuse that with the act of cognition, which is a mental thing. It's that deep knowing within us, which is uh, confused with the body, heart and mind complex and the process of meditation is the process of extracting that from that confusion and in so doing it discovers its true nature and the Buddha refers to it he tends to refer to it in a slightly negative way as the unborn, the undying the uncompounded, the unconditioned which means that it tells us what it's not if we were to describe what it is it puts a concept in our mind and we start searching for it you see, a soul see? and as soon as you start defining something it's very difficult not to search for that thing that you've imagined okay? but whatever it is it's beyond con- the con- concepts because concepts only to do with this this particular level of being and uh, you'll find that in all Vipassana insight meditation whether it's that to do with the Theravada school, or the Zen school, or the Tibetan school, all of them tell you to get rid of thinking. Eh? They all tell you. uh, Zen puts it as no mind, which people think that you might be zonked out or something. But all they say is no thought. Why should they do that? Why, Why is that so important? It's because that's what we are looking at the world through. We're experiencing the world through preconceived ideas when you see a tree you immediately compare it with all the other trees that you've seen just the word tree conjures up ideas with which you look at a tree I remember a teacher used to teach art to children she would take them to a tree and get them to draw the tree and of course they'd all be this stick with a lollipop on top and then she would get them all to lie underneath the tree looking up and then draw the tree. And of course, just seeing it from a different perspective produced a much more realistic tree. (laughs) Our problem is to go beyond the world that we've constructed through our thoughts and continue to construct through our thoughts. Even at the basic, uh, simple experience of taste, you see, as soon as we uh, put something like if you're, if you're eating a pizza if you go and order a pizza you've got an idea of what a pizza is and when you get your pizza it's either a pizza or it's not a pizza it's just not a pizza <laughs> you know it's just a, this isn't a pizza yeah but uh, even those remember the old I don't know whether they, they don't seem to sell them anymore but those old pizzas they used to sell in plastic bags now if you'd never had a pizza before and you tasted one of those you'd have said after the end of it you see and got into it you said well, that was a rather uh, nice, chewy sort of bread with a hint of tomato. Very pleasant. <laughs> Call it a pizza and it's a disaster. <laughs> so our big problem, this is the biggest problem we have, frankly, is to stop thinking, is to see the world without thought. And we do that by burying the attention in sensation and feeling. That's what we do. That's how you do it. So what is an emotion before you give it a name? Huh? What is it? What is pain before you call it pain? Yeah, that's a mental construct. There's no, there's no pain in the body. There's only sensation. Pain is a mental construct. You can prove this to yourself tomorrow. <laughs> even even people whom I deeply love are still objects of my mind. I can never know them in themselves, and they can never know me. All we can form is a is a pleasant relationship a loving relationship but I can never know you and you can never you can never see the world as I see it and I'll never see it the way you see it in this way we live in parallel universes so is it any wonder that we get angry with each other <laughs> Buddha himself reduced all his teachings to a very simple three word formula in the original language of Pali and it translates as I teach suffering, unsatisfactoriness and the end of it that's it, he was only concerned with that area of our lives where we're not happy that's his, his whole psychology centers on that, it's not a developmental psychology, it's not a, it's all about how do you attain perfect peace and happiness and we don't really get on to the, to the spiritual path in Buddhist understandings until we realize that nobody can cause me psychological pain this at first comes as a great disappointment because it's been very pleasant blaming others but you cannot say to your partner, your spouse, to your friend you make me angry you can't say that anymore you make me depressed, you bore me (laughs) which is a disappointment well of course, you know, this is um, the way one overcomes that is through the rather painful process of forgiveness. Oh, that, that's, that, yeah, that's not a problem. I mean, you're not supposed to purposefully enjoy suffering, for heaven's sake. Oh, no, absolutely not. No. And if you are putting up with it, then in a sense you've got to ask yourself, why am I putting up with this rubbish? Yeah, you know, what keeps me in this particular place? There was uh, an old programme member of, um, uh, it's going back years now, um, and they interviewed this bag per- bag person. You know, these people who carry bags of rubbish. I don't see them these days. Do you see them? It's gone, hasn't it? There was a little neurosis there, a, a social neurosis. <laughs> you see them around stations and all that yeah remember them yeah about i don't know 20 years ago they'd be they'd be carrying bags of rubbish and bits of paper and they asked this lady this woman she was sitting there in a cafe um they're not and wasn't mad not mad at all they just asked they said why why are you collecting all this stuff you know why are you carrying this stuff around and she said uh, i was involved in the death of a child her way of expressing her penitence, her guilt and inability to forgive herself which is probably the hardest thing of all to do anyway to forgive yourself but all that harm, all that pain that we have received from others has not been the direct cause of the traumas within our system All the pain within our system that's why they can be expunged either through you know certain therapeutic techniques or vipassana but the real thing about all this is forgiveness and when you hear somebody say I can't forgive see that's the child that's the child who says I can't sleep because they want to watch the football yeah? of course you can forgive if you don't want to you don't want to let them off you want to punish them and they've done that in the States, haven't they? Where they thought that would be some sort of healing process, where they've allowed the family of the murdered person to watch the execution of the murderer. It's not been satisfactory at all. They didn't, they didn't think it was painful enough do it again. <laughs> because it's revenge, isn't it? And there's beautiful stories. I've, I've got a book of beautiful stories of forgiveness where all that pain goes. One, the most startling, or one of the most startling, is of a mother whose son is murdered. And she visits the murderer in, in prison and continues to visit him. And when he's released, only a young man, he ta- she takes him in as her son. Ah, there's a bit of forgiveness, one. And it's an interesting th- process if you if you really give yourself to it, you may actually see you may actually experience the transformation of hatred and revenge into compassion for the person through a change of attitude within ourselves. You might actually experience that transformation. Sorry. May I just add something? Yes, sure. There's a recent example of uh, somebody called Priyanka Gandhi, who's the daughter of Sonia Gandhi. She lost her father, Rajiv, to the FTT bombers. And uh, the lady who was involved with killing her father is in jail. And she's been visiting her. Sonia has actually been visiting her. Why are they also very forgiving? Mm. They're very nice relationships. There we are. How interesting! Mm-hmm. Hey? Yes, <coughs> the um, one of the core teachings of the Buddha is the, is the, uh, uh, the role of intention. It, everything begins with your intention. An intention you can describe as a desire or a wish. It's a movement in the mind of wanting. If that's unwholesome, it's going to create an unwholesome conditioning. If it's wholesome, it'll create a wholesome conditioning. This is where your true karma lies in Buddhist understanding. What happens... To you, you you put an action out in the world. What comes to you from the world is, you know, is being... You can't say that's your true karma because it's been messed about with by all these other people in the world. What you get back... Uh, may be inappropriate to your original action uh, for instance um, you may go to a, a lottery and, um, and buy a pound, a pound worth and you win 10 million that's not your karma <laughs> that, must be, <laughs> that must be part of the whole system of, of, of joining a lottery yeah and if you, th- if you have a, an understanding oh well in my past life I must have given thousands thousands of pounds away you're just, you're just rationalizing something which is a perfectly ordinary you can put a straightforward rational argument to it on the other hand, you might do some good and the person hates you for it and continues to hate you for it. And, and that's it, that's their problem. Real karma, in terms of the liberation of the heart, in terms of, of achieving this pure peace and happiness, is within ourselves. So when we intend something, it's important to recognize, is this going to do me good or bad? Right? And remember that when you pay attention, it's an act of intention. Every time you pass a billboard on the bus and you look at it, it goes in. It's conditioning you. Because you, you've made an intention to actually attend to it. See? So that's why your, your intention is the beginning of your conditioning. So having recognized that this intention is a good intention, you then empower it and go into the action. As you go into the action, you may be aware of yourself doing what you're doing but as your concentration grows and your commitment grows you lose yourself in the action that is you know you can call it an ibanic moment ask yourself when you finish that ask yourself how was I in that moment you'll see there's no suffering, there was peace, there was happiness now if you go into a situation with indulgence, it's exactly the same. Huh? You go in there saying to yourself, I'm going to really enjoy this film. I'm going to really enjoy it. Yeah, this is the sort of film I want, a lot of violence and sex, great. So you go in and you lose yourself, two hours. And you come out, no time, no sense of self. Huh? But unfortunately, there's <laughs> there are consequences within the psyche. One is a loss of self into an indulgence, which is going to create problems, and one is a loss of self into a non-indulgence, which creates the beautiful mind. So that's where it's, like in anything like, you know, when you give something, say you want to help somebody, so you're giving your time, or or you want to make a donation to something, you're giving of your wealth. And when you do something like that, you know, just stop for a minute and, and get your attitude right, See? i'm doing this for the benefit of somebody else Mm? and then you get that benefit of renunciation and what renunciation does is it loosens that possessiveness on things it loosens it up Mm? and when that when your thought is full of that when your when your mind is full of that intention that's when you start doing or that's when you give yeah now is that the end of the problem? no because as you're doing these, these other thoughts can come in as well you see but you know what they're there because you're aware of them coming and you keep re-establishing your right intention hmm? and in that way you train yourself to keep on the, the straight and narrow <laughs> when you're giving and you give something you see and you've done it with that mind full of the purpose that this is for the benefit of somebody else you're actually giving it okay well, as soon as you give it, you always get that little thought come up. You are truly a very generous and wonderful person. Yeah. But you see, you turn on that. Ah, that's an afterthought that did not affect my giving. Yeah, or it could be in the more negative. Too much, get a bit back. See, ah, you see, you catch. You say, ah, I caught you there, Mara. This is the evil one. You see, <laughs> and all the time you're making the effort to make sure that your intentions are wholesome and good, and eventually you surprise yourself with spontaneous actions of goodwill for which you may not be loved so you're not dependent on whether somebody appreciates it or not then then you get into fame and celebrity then you've really had it And you become the classic do gooder. The do gooder is someone who does you the good they want to do you. (laughs) And you better like it. Yeah. This is about practicing. Yeah. Christina Feldman said that mindfulness is relatively easy it's remembering to be mindful well put
1: what would would your tips be well
0: it's yeah yeah well one of the big things that works for me is to keep saying stop the biggest one of my biggest tricks for myself is to keep saying the word stop Just get in the habit, every time you stop. Great, isn't it? <laughs> it only lasts a bit, but at least in that moment, there's been stop. Wonderful word. So, after you've answered the phone call, stop. When, when you're doing something here, and you're involved in this, the phone goes, Don't you know, there's no need to launch yourself at the phone. <laughs> I mean, most people will hang on for three rings see, so you know, you stop you hear the bell and then and you you put it down stop, relax you relax the shoulders, stop so you're constantly bringing yourself back into the present moment, into the presenting moment very little, very simple trick and whenever you find yourself rushing see, stop if you're going to be late, fine doesn't matter if you lose your job fine stop relax <laughs> <laughs> so the more, the more we can get the habit of just stopping that's the big trick I visited uh, some of you will know Plum Village you know Tichnachar's place do you know that place in, in France mm. well he has a little trick of he has somebody who can ring the bell any time in the whole monastery so once he rings the bell everybody stops you have to stop walking, you have to stop. Stop. And it even, and he's put it down to even to the, the, the phone bell. But as soon as you hear a phone bell, you stop. No matter what you're doing, you're brushing your teeth, stop. <laughs> and it's just a little, a little practice of stopping. I think you'll find that, I, I find it really powerful. And the other thing is, when you know that you're doing something which just carries you away, like the computer, you know, you're on there for three hours, heaven's sake. So get yourself one of these watches with a timer on it. You just put a 30 minute timer and then really obey it all Right, stop <laughs> cup of tea you see when you have a cup of tea when you have a break you see so make that a little ritual a little ceremony right, where you stop and you make it a meaningful break see, see most times you make the cup of tea and mine's all over the place and then you, and you put it down and you think did I have that cup of tea or not? <laughs> or <laughs> well, you make it and it goes cold you have to go to the, you to go to the um, um, oh damn what's that machine called <laughs> thank you <laughs> the microwave stick it in again you do that all day with the same cup of tea so yes it is it's, um, it's not our habit we're always living in in some future time See, we're always moving towards a future And your own body language, you know, to make sure your shoulders are always relaxed. Like the jaws relaxed. Teeth are usually set apart, not clenched. If you relax your face, you can feel a smile come. All the dopamine starts pouring out. Nobody else can see the smile. You still look grim. Yeah. just comes with a natural relaxation of your face Ah that's a different yes no no that's a slightly different type of stopping you know, I, i'm just talking about stopping what you're doing and being present yeah stopping uh, a heavy habit is a, is hard work yeah is one attraction anger a more difficult more subtle You know if if you have um, I mean my father used to smoke heavily and it was ruining his voice he used to like, like singing in a choir so he stopped himself he stopped smoking by whenever he would normally have a cigarette he'd go, he'd go and take it out on the piano <laughs> I mean that's that's a sort of skillful way of displacing your your energy you know but I think you just have to be careful With an antidote that you're not actually suppressing the problem that's all you still have to be in contact with the feelings that are being presented that's all. But um, there's also times in our lives when it's inappropriate to express what we feel you know we might be we might be feeling a bit depressed in ourselves but we meet a friend and you you lift yourself over it don't you and be friendly and joyful. So you're putting it aside, as it were. But I wouldn't, I don't like, I don't particularly like antidotes because they tend to suppress. You see, through certain practices like metta, the the goodwill practice, you can build up a real charisma. You know, a real person that everybody wants to hug. But it's just... Sitting on top of this pig's wheel, you know, it's like icing on top of pigs. It's not being, it's not really dealing with this stuff. So there has to be some time when you can allow these more unwholesome turbulences to manifest. What did you suggest? Well, that's o- well, that's another one. You see, it's either. Either it's producing a beautiful state of mind, which is good in itself, yeah, or uh, you can observe the quality of impermanence in the breath, in which, in which case it becomes an insightful practice. So that could be used as a situation where you're is expressing that particular emotion, not suppressing it? You could be using it for that, not wanting to feel something, so you put your attention on a physical action or... I mean, there are times when it's skillful to put, a, to, put to one side, you know, unwholesome states. Just put it to the side and say, I'll deal with you later or another time. You know? Well, uh, bodily sensations are, you know, they're perceived by the mind, they're perceived and then some thought comes up around it, you know, t- t- just ordinary things like eating, you know, you just, just watch your mind when you're eating something, it's always talking about it, always saying something about it, it's forming a relationship the mind forms a relationship with sensations all we have to do is make sure that um, it's a wholesome relationship that's all so when you eat for instance you eat to nourish the body that's it if it tastes nice consider that to be a plus it doesn't have to (laughs) not if it's just to nourish the body Time for a bit of a cup of tea, is it? Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> 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 yeah, do you want so to tea. Tea. Tea is a, We've got a couple of, pepper right? Pepper right of tea. Hmm. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharmaseed.org slash donate.